Christopher Lydon, this is Open Source. From the old waterfront neighborhood with the clabbered houses and brick sidewalks teeming with tourists this Halloween weekend comes the original American Dance with the Devil. It's our core legend of evil in the hearts of decent men and women. Holy superstition, social hysteria, gross injustice that haunt public spaces and family names on the North Shore of Boston to this day. How was it, you ask, that proper, God-fearing Protestants in sanctified 17th-century New England killed an assortment of unknowing men, women, and children, 19 in all, for criminal compacts with Satan? In fact, relentless study turns up more and more of who did what to whom and why, and perhaps what it all means. Two prolific Salem sleuths are with me in the studio, then a novelist with one of the famous witch trial names tracks Salem's central place in the very best of American fiction. But first, the biographer and social portraitist Stacy Schiff leads our conversation from her own rich reconstruction of The Witches, Salem, 1692. Picture religious refugees in a dark continent three and a quarter centuries ago, natives milling around and now and then raiding the English settlements that were planting seeds of a new world. I was shocked by by my own ignorance of the moment and of the time economically, politically, psychologically. You're really talking about infant America. This is three generations after America's founding, so to speak. And you're talking about a colony very dislocated politically and economically. So um, an anxious time three generations down the road where essentially Massachusetts consists of a, of a small number of isolated towns, largely rural, houses not necessarily near each other, so isolated outposts to some extent. And where a very traumatic Indian war has just ended and a new one is about to begin. And that's something of which I had very little sense of how how great the fear was of invasion and of attack. You also have, obviously, a very rigorous faith, so there's a great sort of spiritual strain on these people, and a sense of divorce, in a way, from the mother country. They're somewhat at sea in these small communities. And I guess the thing that I wanted to emphasize in the book and that plays such a role in what will happen in 1692 is that in these tiny, fragmented communities, you are living largely and often in the dark. And the dark is almost a player in the story. It's a velvety, all-encompassing, disorienting dark of the kind we really don't know. Stacey, I love your descriptions of the dark. The 17th century sky was crow black, pitch black, Bible black. We just don't see that kind of black anymore. And in the court testimony, you start reading about people who are disoriented in their own front yards or in trees that aren't where they were supposed to be. In other court testimony, you read about women who walk into their bedrooms and stumble on clothes on the floor and find a strange man in their beds. When it's dark, terrifying things can happen to you. And terrifying things, obviously, as we all know today, happen in your mind in the dark. Your faith is stronger in the dark, your fears are greater in the dark, and your imagination is um, Mm. utterly liberated in the dark. Stacey Schiff, you write there were 85,000 people in all of New England in 1692 could fit in the new Yankee Stadium. The main work was farming, but you could get the impression that they spent most of their time in church, listening to sermons. The sermon is the one means of sort of public broadcasting. There are no newspapers yet. 
So the single mean of common communication, of shared language and shared communication, is what you hear from the pulpit. There are estimates as to how many sermon hours the basic New Englander would have absorbed, Mm. which are astonishing. But I think it's funny that you say that people seem to spend their time in church because my sense in spending this long in the 17th century was that they seem to spend all their time in court. These are unbelievably litigious people. In a funny way, I feel like I have to apologize for the 17th century New Englander. He or she believed fervently in witchcraft. It went part and parcel with the religion. It was a capital crime. It existed in his mind as plainly as did heat or light. There was really very little reason to doubt its existence. They're largely of English origin. They had all known of prior English witchcraft trials. And they knew that certain symptoms were indications of witchcraft. When they begin to observe those symptoms in early 1692, they don't immediately jump to the conclusion that it's witchcraft. But when the witchcraft diagnosis is delivered, it makes perfect sense to them. This is what they have always assumed the witchcraft looked like. And it, in this case manifests as sort of senseless trances and convulsions and writhing and screaming on the part of several prepubescent girls. Stacey, you mentioned King Philip's War. I mean, it was 15 years in the near past and scary, but there was also, you write, an apocalypse. The big one had been imminent since the middle of the century. Everyone in this story has his reasons. And the great mystery, of course, isn't so much why does witchcraft break out or why is it taken so seriously or prosecuted so mercilessly, but what are everyone's reasons? Because everyone involved in this particular tragedy comes to it with an agenda. There have been predictions that the Second Coming would happen in exact years, as is often the case with these kinds of predictions, and it hadn't come. The arrival of witchcraft, the arrival of these infernal fiends, was a sign that it could not be far off. So the witchcraft is to some extent embraced by some members of the ministry because it does seem as if it is finally making good on a long-term prediction. And moreover, it's almost a badge of honor. Mm. If there is a plague of witchcraft in New England, that is only proof that the New Englanders are a chosen people. Um, As Cotton Mather puts it, where would the devil descend but there where he is hated most? So it almost becomes proof of the New Englander's great piety. Mm. Another angle entirely, there's a sexual fraughtness in these communities. This, of course, Essex County, Massachusetts, was Updike country 300 years later. But it's incredibly (laughs) interesting in the 17th century. The women obviously are disproportionately suspected and then punished. But there are free women among them, too. What should we make of the... The gender lines in 17th century New England. As is often the case when things are dislocated, and in this case, economically and politically, obviously things are, have gone a bit off the rails and are a bit in flux, women make gains at times like that. And people have argued, and it is certainly possible to say, that because women have, at this point, gained a certain power, there may be a bit of a backlash. But what you see with the trial testimony is two things. You see... Girls saying things which, whether they realize it or not, seem to indicate that they have been victims of some kind of assault or at least attempted assaults. You get a lot of reference to pinches and pricks and pitchforks being aimed at them. Mm. There's a certain rippling of sexual tension under the surface. And then interestingly, what you get... Freudian wonderland Yeah, you certainly see a lot of imagery here, which is provocative. And then you see something very different, which is from in the men's testimony... The men who are testifying against women whom they accuse 
are often citing examples of being attacked in their beds. They're constantly attacked in their beds by the alleged witches. And it's interesting, it's not necessarily a sexual assault. It's that the women appear in their beds, they try to strangle them, or they appear as gleaming lights on their feet, or they smother them. And what's odd about that is that if you look at the prior court testimony, at the non-witchcraft testimony, women were often finding strange men in their beds. And here you have men in court professing to be attacked by women. So there, there does more seem more to like be... Updike. Yes, exactly. Um, so there does seem to be some sort of strange backlash there or some settling of scores there. But I think what the witchcraft does more is what we always want faith or magic to do for us, which is that it explains the inexplicable. It resolves mm. that which we can't resolve. It reminds us that there's a world beyond the world we see. And I, and I think on some level, most of us would like to think that there is something there. There is some numinous thing out there. Mm. Come to the things in this whole story that just remind us of our world. In the 80s around Boston and lots of other places, there were prosecutions of daycare centers, for example, for molestation on the testimony of children, recovered memory, maybe all made up. You know, immediately we think of that as a kind of replay of some of the elements here, not to mention Arthur Miller and McCarthyism and lots of other things. But draw it into the present, Stacy, and all the things in the Salem time that remind us of impulses that keep breaking out in our world. Mm-hmm. I would say that there you have an almost perfect parallel with Salem. McCarthyism, it is a witch hunt, but in fact there are communists, at least somewhere in this world. Presumably there are no witches. We're talking about a fictional construct here. What happens with the with the daycare cases is exactly the same kind of thing, where suddenly out of the mouths of children you have these fantastical stories and a rash of them, which for whatever reasons, and again, there must be another agenda at work, everyone chooses to believe. And again, you have children who are, as they were in 1692, you have adolescents in 1692 running the show, which is, of course, one of the extraordinary mm. parts about it, that the, that the girls are essentially educating the authorities as to how this witchcraft thing worked. And the authorities are pursuing it for their own reasons, but the girls are, are really at the center of the story. The false confessions are really interesting. Right. You look at the testimony and you'll see that someone will, will speak three times with the authorities, and the first time he or she will mention that she's attended a diabolical Sabbath, and the next time she talks, she adds to it that she's flown through the air to the diabolical Sabbath, and then the third time she's flown to the diabolical Sabbath through the air with a neighbor. And, you know, you begin to see the demented um, add-ons of all these details because to some extent she or he has come to believe his or her own story. And you can see the the pressure in building, both in prison and before the authorities, to produce the kind of story that the authorities are, are looking for, right. which was understood to be unable to recite the Lord's Prayer. And I think there are five or six people in Salem who are asked to recite the Lord's Prayer before the authorities in a hearing room, and all of them trip over the words, which tells you something about the strain these people were under. Who do we list as the great winners and losers in this story? Well, ultimately, interestingly, the great loser is the church. The idea of confession, which is so central to Puritanism, will be tainted after this because obviously there have been so many false confessions in the course of the trials. So the church is to some extent maimed in this process. Mm. I guess the other thing I would just say, you know, just the fascination with it is, you know, you read stories of persecution or you read moments in history where all goes awry and you wonder what would happen when the knock comes at your door. 
And this is one of those moments where there is no rhyme or reason to where the accusations will lead next. No one has any particular immunity. You can be a full church member, you can be a rich merchant, you can be a homeless four-year-old girl, you may be accused of witchcraft. And it's that seeming randomness of this, um, this charge, which you cannot get out from under, you can't argue your way out of, that I, I just find so chilling. That was Stacy Schiff. She's just published her social panorama, The Witches, Salem, 1692. Coming up, what more we know and don't know about those people in that story. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Dateline, Salem, 1692, the year that 19 unlucky colonists, ages 5 to nearly 80, were tried and put to death for criminal sorcery. 18 by hanging, one man being crushed instead under a great pile of boulders. Salem and its witches are the best-known story of infant America, as Stacy Schiff just called it. It's heavily documented, public, popular history for all comers, from all angles, and they arrive in droves. Our guest, Marilyn Roach, from Watertown, Massachusetts, is an inspired amateur, author of Six Women of Salem, a study specially of the girls and women judged to be witches and killed for the suspicion. Emerson Baker, known as Tad, is professor of history at Salem State College. His new book last year was titled A Storm of Witchcraft, The Salem Trials, and the American experience. Ted Baker, you took us through the landmarks this week in Salem. What we'll never forget is what you quoted at the memorial that the city of Salem built in 1992 to the victims on the 300th anniversary of their deaths. Some of their last words are engraved on stones in the Garden of Repose, not far from the stones of their accusers. The uh, inscriptions carved into the, in the entranceway here are some of the lines taken from the witch trial transcripts. We have almost a thousand pages of documents that survive from the court records. And you can see some of them carved in here um, by some of the victims protesting their innocence. I am wholly innocent of such wickedness. O oh Lord, help me. God knows I am innocent. I do plead not guilty. In 1692, it became quite clear that all you had to do was confess to being a witch and your life would probably be spared, or at least you weren't going to face immediate trial and execution. Only those people who refused to lie, who said, no, I, I, am, I am such a devout Christian, I cannot lie to God, um, I cannot condemn myself to hell, I cannot my, condemn my family to generations of shame and humiliation, I am not guilty, I am not a witch. That was you, Ted Baker. Quoting martyrs, heroes, I mean, saints by almost any definition, no? Absolutely. The, these are the real, the real heroes of the story who paid the ultimate price. I want to hear your favorites, a sketch of one or maybe two of those six women, <laughs> Marilyn Roach. Well, well uh, Bridget Bishop is a good one. She, she was known to be cranky, so I kind of identify with her now and then. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, she, nobody spoke up for her. With some of the others, like Rebecca Nurse, she had an extended family that stood by her the whole time. It didn't do any good. She was hanged. But nobody seemed to speak up for poor Bridget. Uh, she'd been, she was married to her third husband. The second one, who had died, uh, had hit her a few times. She hit him back. Mm. She was forceful. If somebody 
said she'd done something she hadn't done. She got angry and said as much to them. Uh, she had been accused of stealing at one point, said she had not done it. It was mm. a piece of metal mechanism from a the local grist mill, which could be sold for scrap, but she said she hadn't taken it, and she certainly hadn't tried to sell it, she said. But I guess the co- uh, case was dismissed because she's around, but people think of her as a thief. And the miller's son, who had testified against her, oh, something invisible hits him in the night, knocks him down. We don't know if he was drinking or not. The wheels fall off the wagon when he's making a delivery, and he knows that, that was her way of getting back at him, he's sure. And he testifies to that when she is actually accused of witchcraft in 92. But she'd been suspected of witchcraft before and survived that. What was her response at trial, Marilyn? Uh, she said she was innocent. Uh, she she didn't know the people who were accusing her, meaning the afflicted witnesses who were having convulsions, who lived at that point, most of them were from Salem Village, which was the rural part of town. She lived in town near the harbor, and she didn't know them. They're using gossip and hearsay, I think, is what set them off. And uh, people came out of her past, neighbors from the town, Mm. saying that when they were doing repairs on her house, there were uh, little poppets, dolls in the foundation stuck with pins, which... You know, the house predated her being married to the guy who owned <laughs> it. Cut to the chase. I Sorry. want to know Bridget's last words. Do we know them? No, but she was defiant to the end. Just like Bridget. <laughs> Tad Baker and, and Marilyn, too. I want to know your big theories mm. of why this happened. Who started it? What finished it? But Well... Everything was going wrong. I mean, you had the good fr- a good phrase on that. That's why we call it a storm of witchcraft. Right. It really takes a convergence of lots of things going bad to create, uh, you know, just like the loss of the Essex fishing fleet uh, in, in the perfect storm. It takes a perfect storm of witchcraft to create the worst outbreak of witchcraft in American history. Same part of the world, too. Absolutely. But so... Like what, for example, had war. gone wrong? War with Canada. <laughs> That's that, you, that second war. Not This is after King Philip's War. Now we have King William's War. Mm-hmm. And look who we're fighting against. It's, the, it's the, the, the Catholic French and the Native Americans who, pardon me, the Puritans would have seen as heathen, mm-hmm. were godless. Uh, and so together these groups are sort of agents of, again, they would have been seen as agents of, of Satan. And they are destroying the settlements in northern New England. They are literally destroying the Puritan city upon a hill. So there's a great symbolism in this war. It's not just a military defeat with more taxes and and boys dying on the frontier. Mm. And if you combine that with the worst weather of the Little Ice Age we now know now, Mm -hmm. which means crop failures, it means – see if this sounds familiar – some of the worst winters in history, some of the longest, driest summers (laughs) in history. Yeah. (laughs) Crop failure, inflation. (laughs) Enter the witches. But I want to know who was chosen for the accusation and why. And especially, was it as random as history says, like a plague? You know, anybody could get it. A lot of the people had been suspected before, whether they'd been accused formally, like Bridget, but long simmering resentments. But uh, the first three were people near or in the household of the minister in the village whose daughter and niece were the first to have some sort of convulsions. There was something wrong with them, but we don't know what really. 
and they accused the, the, the slave woman in the family and a couple of neighbors. And then the, when the hearings took place, the, the neighbors insisted they were innocent, and the slave woman is sort of verbally backed into con- almost confessing. She doesn't quite confess. She's saying she's a victim of all these witches. She's agreeing with it, and they, they assume she's one of the witches. I guess my general question for you, Tad, is can anybody say that the witch trials and accusations were an instrument of, of power, class power, church power, gender power, you name it? All of the above. Uh, yeah. Really? I, well, I think in many ways. Here, realize, though, too, that what's going on in Salem is not unique, right? There's about 100,000 people accused of witchcraft in Europe and her colonies over about a 300-year period. That's a key period. point, right. You know, and, and, and frankly, uh, Salem is just a, a fly speck. Um, by European standards, where in one outbreak you had 2,000 people executed over a 10-year period in the city of Cologne, Germany, uh, Salem, Salem is is nothing. You know, I, I don't mean to minimize the loss. One of them was one of my ancestors, but uh, you know, so you have to Sorry realize about that. that. <laughs> yes, he was too. Um, but uh, he was one of the ones who, five people who died in prison actually while awaiting trial. Um, but realize then that uh, there's there's so many forces going on here. You have uh, political uncertainty in the colony. Um, you have uh, lots of anger amongst the people, scared at the war, scared at the perceived sign of Satan being loose in the colony. Um, they're angry. Five ministers and four ministers' wives are accused of witchcraft. Members of the government, what we would call today the state senate, uh, are accused. The governor's wife is accused. The wife of the leader. But you minister. know, your reference to Europe is is to me the 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 key one. The the fact that, as I read these stories, it seems to me, it's it's an epic of something that's coming to an end, not something that's beginning. And it happens just to get a toehold on our shore. But uh, somebody's pointed out that in in England at the time, uh, John Locke, the great. Uh, political scholar, Isaac Newton, maybe the greatest mind that ever lived, the side of Johann Sebastian Bach, but I mean, an mm-hmm. unbelievable prodigy. He believed, though, they believed in witches. Of course they did. Sure. Middle of the 17th century, their contemporaries sure. of Cotton Mather, they were as deep into it as he was. Yes. Robert, Robert Boyle, the, the great physicist, the founder of physics, physics, is engaged in experiments to see if he can literally prove that witches are real. Because if you doubt the existence of witches who were created by Satan, and Satan, who's created by God, if you don't believe the witches are real, it's a slippery slope. Do you not believe that God's real? (laughs) Speaking of other odd notes, I I think there's a fascinating sort of early fantasy of sort of American exceptionalism in this too, as as Stacey Schiff was just saying. It was a point of pride among some of those ministers that the that Armageddon was going to take place right here in Boston, Boston's own, Boston strong, so to speak. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not sure how much the general public was aware of that, but but I'm Nicholas Noyes, with the minister in Salem, was very interested in the Book of Revelations all along. But she was saying that that they thought it was a badge of honor to be have, have been selected for this ultimate shootout, the end of times. Well, you had a chance a local to prove story. yourself spiritually, certainly. Right, absolutely. This is this is the city upon the hill. They have a special covenant with God and. They've been beset with Satan as their great test, and they have to overcome Satan. They've mm. been trying to do things right, God's way, so naturally Satan would have it in for them. Other people might be too easy a target. How good were they that 
they were so good that Satan had to <laughs> well, well, stop it. <laughs> well, you consider, think about this. You know, uh, they are here to form the, what, what uh, Winthrop calls the city upon the hill, right? And in fact, actually, the first settlement of Massachusetts is not Boston, the hub of the universe. The first settlement of Massachusetts Bay is Salem. That's when right. Winthrop arrives and gives that sermon, he's talking quite literally as well as metaphorically about Salem. It is that shining Christian utopian community. And two, de- two, two generations later, they're accusing each other of witches. Of everybody they, goes, oh, sorry. So, oh, well, that on a hill pot also indicated that everybody was watching the experiment of the settlement to see if they were going to fail or not. So don't blow it. Everybody goes to Salem now. I want to know where you go in, I mean, literally, uh, street address, um, uh, to feel the tingle of this story. Well, the burying ground, burial point. And, uh, of course, the Corwin House, called the Witch House for generations, which is still standing, was the home of one of the judges. So that has a direct tie. I mean, if the walls could talk, those are the walls that you'd hear something. Uh, You know, the first period houses that are there and just sort of walking around the geography of it, Mm -hmm. if you know that a good deal of it's been filled in, like Boston. But... Once you have the lay of the land in your mind, you can figure out where things happen. You can figure out where the wheels fell off the cart of the miller when he was at odds with Bridget Bishop. What you feel, though, in those spectacular houses of central Salem is more Hawthorne's world than, mm. than um, uh, you know, uh, Cotton Mathers, no? Well, I, I, I think in some ways. But also, too, I mean, to me, it's... Uh, I mean, I get this sense pretty much everywhere. I drive into to Salem to work, and I like to drive through Salem Village and come in through the old street by the 17th mm-hmm. century houses oh, yeah. and the site of the parsonage. It's a little more—it's not rural. It's suburban in yeah. Danvers now that was Salem Village. But, yeah, Rebecca Nurse's farm, yeah, there's house, land yeah. around it, and there's mm-hmm. a house and, and the meeting house replica. And the cemetery where she's supposed to be buried, yeah, where her family basically was. stole her body off of Gallows Hill to give her proper— decent uh, Christian burial. Is there an intact cemetery from the period? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, a couple of them. All of them. Yeah. A number of them, sure. Oh. Of course, yeah. So, and, But also to me, too, is honestly, uh, I get the sense pretty much everywhere because realize people were accused from Wells, Maine to Sudbury, Massachusetts. Um, mm-hmm. People from all throughout mm-hmm. Essex County and Boston were involved. Middlesex County. I mean, the jail yeah. in, in Cambridge right. was full. The, 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 my, my ancestor, uh, Roger Toothaker, died uh, on, in the jail in Court Street in Boston. Did you say Toothaker? Toothaker. Yeah, he yes. wasn't a dentist. He was a doctor, but he not a dentist. A he was a doctor. <laughs> That's <laughs> not really a dentist. his name. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Roger Toothaker, yeah. Who are some of the other players that you fix on? We barely mentioned Cotton Mather or his father, Increase Mather, but... Uh, both among the perps and the victims, who are your, who are your key people? Marilyn, who do you? Perps. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was not Cotton Mather's shining year. He took it, I assume, took it for granted that the judges, who were all older than he was, knew what they were doing. He offered caution. Specifically, they asked, you know, how should we do this? He said, be careful with the spectral evidence. They more or less ignored it. Yeah, he kept saying, be careful, but then kill them. Right, but then he says, well, but, but you're you doing fi- a great if job. If you find a real one. <laughs> right. And they yes. assumed they had, I guess, and he assumed they knew what they were doing, and he didn't question it enough. And and then, of course, his comments when things started to die down, although at the time you didn't know it was over, were unfortunate to uh, for his reputation. I That was a... That was not a shining moment for him, but 
he was not this stereotyped boogeyman that people make. And he did other many, many other, or a number of other important things in promoting inoculations, for example. Mm-hmm. And he wrote many famous sermons that are still read. On the other hand, I'm, I'm amazed that his, he could die with that much. His reputation could survive that much blood on his hands. Well, but but see, well, there's some problems with his reputation. The whole the whole ministry does right, and the whole colony does. Because remember, the the ministers are the top advisors. His father, Increase Mather, is the top political advisor of the governor. Um, so you have this really a theocracy. Um, and uh, as I say, I think that's one reason in, in the end five ministers are accused of witchcraft because people realize that the ministers are leading them astray. So it's not just Cotton Mather, it's the whole system. Ted, you spoke of a thousand pages of court transcripts. I mean, who was writing that stuff? And w- w- what, are the, what are the best scenes in it? Oh, it's, it's immense. Some of them was actually taken down. Imagine this, Samuel Paris, whose daughters are afflicted, who's the minister in Salem Village, he's taking down some of the court testimony. How would that fly today in our, in our efforts to have an unbiased, unprejudiced court? Well, he knew shorthand <laughs> how many people did. Right. He was the most literate man in town. So you had the, the schoolmaster and the ministers write these, write these things down. And they're, they're full of just a amazing detail of the accusations. And to me, what's really amazing is, is some of the details you can see. If you read through the testimony, for example, when I read them carefully, I see things like evidence of uh, domestic abuse, maybe even, maybe just even sexual abuse that you can read in these documents. When you mm. have, when you have uh, one of the afflicted girls testifying that uh, John Proctor's specter whipped her and beat her, and then Mary Warren, John Proctor's servant, says, yes, and I was sitting in the chair, and a specter approached me, and I grabbed him and pulled him into my lap. Mm. Wow. Mm. <laughs> and then the fever broke in, in, in a sort of hurry, and... Uh, Cotton Mather <laughs> got a safe distance from the whole thing. How did that happen? Well, he was oh, he was asked by the go- uh, the government to write their, an account of the trials, probably mostly to explain it to England as to why things were going wrong. And uh, he asked to see some court papers, and I don't know who picked them out, but it made the people being accused sound guilty. And he assumed they had been, and he he supported what the judges had done. But that's that's where his reputation really suffers. Tad, so many of these bad things happen. They stop when when they come to seem ridiculous. Right. Not to mention well, just too scary. For sure. Words. What, well, what broke it? How about when the the governor's wife is accused of being a witch? That's when the governor pretty much Ooh. says, "Enough, enough. You know, this is coming to an end." And he writes to the king and he says, "You know, I know." That uh, good that people who are not witches have been accused. Uh, his wife is accused. In, his increased Mather's wife is accused of witchcraft, and it becomes clear that um, maybe as many as two, at least two hundred or three hundred people have been accused or informally cried out upon. Surely, not all the good people, not all of our representatives to the general court. I know today we may have some questions about our representatives <laughs> in Beacon Hill, but certainly they're they're not all witches then or now. It's a dangerous world for so many reasons, but don't we all agree that it could never happen again? Yeah. Certainly not that way. It would happen differently. Uh, what do you I th- think, Ted? I think it's happening today. Uh-oh. <laughs> like? <laughs> well, like, compare witches to terrorists. We can talk about that if you want. We will. We will. When we come back, we're talking about the Salem witch trials with Marilyn Roach and Tad Baker. The witch trials of 1692. Coming up, history is one thing. The heart's truth. Art's truth can cut even closer. And there's a ton of it out there around the Puritan New England. This is Open Source. 
I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. A lot of what we know about the Puritan New England setting of the Salem Witch Trials is pure fiction, and it's some of the greatest fiction this country has ever produced. The late John Updike honored The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne as the original American masterpiece. The Witches of Eastwick and Roger's Version were just two of the Updike novels that extended Hawthorne's sexual and theological themes into our day. Here is just a taste of one radio version of another of the Hawthorne masterpieces, The House of the Seven Gables. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater presents... Once upon a time, there was a poor and common man named Matthew Maul who owned a couple of acres that were desired by a rich and titled man named Colonel Pinchian, who wished to build a house on the property. Since the colonel could not acquire the land by lawful means, he took others. The year was 1650, and he connived to have Matthew Maul declared a wizard, condemned to die on the scaffold, which is where our story begins. You have not heard the last of Matthew Maul. You or your children, or your children's children. In particular, you, Colonel Pynchon, and all the family who follows you. Look at him, everyone, as a dying man makes a promise. Colonel Pynchon, God will give you and yours blood to drink. <laughs> Catherine Howe is our guest in the long line of Howes who are descended from the cast of characters in which era Salem. She herself grew up in Houston, then returned to the roots for graduate school. By now, she's a very successful young novelist in her own right who got a critical jolt of inspiration, she says, in an old house that she and her husband had rented in the venerable North Shore town of Marblehead. She told us the essential wisdom of the Salem Witch Trials is distilled for her in what the great Hawthorne called his romance, that House of Seven Gables. The House of the Seven Gables is, for me, the the signal Hawthorne book. The number of layers that you can peel back is truly staggering. Remind us of the dark story within the The dark story within the House of the Seven Gables is it is a a grand Salem family, the Pynchon family, who have fallen on hard times and have dwindled down to a spinster who's living alone, who then is joined by her somewhat insane cousin after he gets out of prison. And she has been brought to such a point of desperation that she deigns to open a scent shop in her grand family estate. So she has, she is this, she thinks very highly of herself. She's very proud. And yet she is destitute. In this thread, there is this kind of Yankee stereotype of, you know, proud destitution. So Miss Pynchon opens a scent shop. And over the course of the story, a, a bright young character named Phoebe joins them. And there's also a Hawthorne stand-in. There's an artist character who's living in the back who is Hawthorne's proxy mm. in throughout the course of the story. But the central question is that uh, the house was built on land that the Pynchons stole from Matthew Maul, who's a fictional person condemned as a witch. That Matthew condemned uh, Colonel Pynchon, who stole his land with this curse. If you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink. 
Pynchon stole the land, built the grand house, and then choked to death on his own blood sitting in the middle of the house. And so there is a portrait mm-hmm. on the wall of this of this uh, grand patriarch who died because of this curse, and that the, the idea is that the family's fortunes had been sliding ever since, that there was a, a pall hanging over the House of the Seven Gables because of the legacy of this injustice, that the injustice itself was built into the walls of the house. And I don't want to give away the twist. I don't know if it counts as a twist. The other, there's a fantasy of lost wealth, which is to say uh, proof of ownership of tracts of land in Maine, which of course was part of Massachusetts in the 17th century, um, which it turns out, which if only Miss Pynchon could find it, then she could close the scent shop and be restored to her former glory. Well, lo and behold, the deed to the land is hidden in the wall behind the portrait of Colonel Pynchon. So it is literally built into the walls of the house. Um, and so the, the way that Hawthorne uses the house itself, the house is both a symbol and also an embodiment of shame mm-hmm. and of cultural appropriation and of distrust and betrayal and so there's a tremendous physicality to it. Talking to your to your point about you know what is it about the physicality of the North Shore? Yeah. What is it about the space of the North Shore? I feel like those very questions are at the very center of what Hawthorne is grappling with in the House of the Seven Gables. You're persuading me that Seven Gables, not the Scarlet Letter, is the perfect distillation of everything we're talking about around witches. I would I would say that it is. And Hawthorne was at pains also to point out that he conceived of his fiction not as novels but as romances. Yes. And so Hawthorne's very conscious of the power that fiction holds to innervate certain ideas in history, um, which is something that I personally find very interesting. He was writing around the time that history as a field was becoming professionalized for the first time. And if you look at some of the first history books about the history of North America, oftentimes they leave out Salem. Salem had been written out of early sweeping histories of of North America and of the United States. And so Hawthorne is very keenly aware of the power that fiction holds to bring a certain approach to history to life. But at the same time, he, like me, like Arthur Miller, is trapped in his own cultural moment and is using this historical event as a lens for his own questions, for his own prerogatives. Um, you can still visit the House of the Seven Gables today. It's such a, such a dramatic mm-hmm. uh, sort of space in American literature that it persists as a place that people want to visit and want to see and want to touch and experience. And Hawthorne is an interesting case because he used historical fiction to grapple with his own sense of place and his own sense of guilt and responsibility, mm-hmm. his sense of the fact that Salem and that region of the world has been tainted by a miscarriage of justice. And I think that that sense of taintedness or a a consistent worry about what Salem means is one of the reasons that people are drawn to visit Salem today. I mean, certainly Salem is the place to go for Halloween. It's a lot of fun and it's a wonderful town. But I think one of the reasons that so many people go to Salem is this desire for physical proximity as if physical proximity can explain this eternal conundrum Mm. of how could American culture, with all that we hold dear about that culture, have allowed this to happen? 
I think that we keep worrying at that question as a culture, as a society, in history, in literature, in film. And in some ways, the reason we keep worrying about it is because there is no satisfactory answer. What's the modern moral of the tale of the young women in the witch trials? The modern moral of the tale of the young women in the witch trials is that being an adolescent girl is very hard. I have tremendous sympathy, I would even, I might go so far as to even say pity for the afflicted girls. One of them, Anne Putnam, who is written out of the crucible. Her name is changed. She's turned into a totally minor character. Uh, Anne Putnam accused more people who went to the gallows than anybody else. And she also is the only afflicted girl who later issued an apology. Mm. When she was in her 20s and she was still unmarried, she stood up and apologized. Her, her apology was read uh, at meeting on Sunday. Saying, what did she say? She, I'm going to forget, I won't be able to quote it directly, but she essentially said that they had been deluded by Satan, that they had been, that they had accused the wrong people. She didn't stop believing in witchcraft, I hasten to add. She didn't stop believing in the devil. She didn't stop believing that the invisible world had valence in her everyday life, but she came to confess that they had been deluded by Satan and that she wanted to lie in the dust. That I can quote directly, that she felt so badly about it, she wanted to lie in the dust. Catherine, bring it home in some sense um, to the North Shore, but also to the incredible closeness, vibrancy of all of these issues, witch trials, Hawthorne, your own work, sin, punishment, secrecy, shame, kind of eternal witness on everything we're doing, right and wrong. What is this witch saga all about in the end? You know, I feel like Salem... And we return to it each year, especially around Halloween, because I think Halloween is a time of, of masking and misbehavior mm. and indulgence, but it's kind of an invited, invited and, and sanctified misbehavior in a way. And I think for that reason, we, we think about wickedness and we think about wicked things and we flirt with wickedness and with wicked things and we costume ourselves in wickedness. And yet in the corners of our, of our consciousness or in the corners of our memory, we think about real wickedness. We're still afraid, I think, of real wickedness. And that's why costuming about it is so attractive. It gives us a sense of control. And so we return to Salem because Salem reminds us that wickedness is real, that good-hearted people following the law who are educated and who really mean well can, through the apparatus of the state, murder 19 people who did nothing wrong. It's a chilling fact, and that's why we can't let it go. We have to look at that wickedness and understand or try to understand what is fundamentally not understandable. That was the novelist Catherine Howe. Marilyn Roach and Tad Baker, how do you understand what is not understandable? Marilyn? Well, it, it shows human nature in its worst, at its worst and with the people who told the truth and the people who defended them at its best. And that sort of thing just keeps happening with different clothed with the different cultures and times that it happens in so that 
it's not going to be, when it happens the next time or is happening now, it won't look like it did in Salem, but it's, it's the same, same path, the road to hell being paved with good intentions and everything goes wrong from there on. Tad, please. Sure. I mean, as we mentioned earlier, if you think about uh, the 17th century where witches are real, uh, where they can kill you, destroy your family, they want to annihilate your faith, uh, eliminate your country, and they don't even have to be present to do it. They're recruiting converts amongst the discontented, and you don't, even, don't know who they are. Mm. So how do you and the government stop them from destroying you? Well, if you swap the word witch for terrorist, I think you understand the kind of problem that we face today. And frankly, seems to me Salem... The reason it resonates so much with us today is because it basically challenges the whole idea of American exceptionalism, doesn't it? Sure does. I mean, as, as Catherine said— It mocks it. I mean, it holds it, up sure. an extreme case of it and says— Right. Well, I mean, look, look at this. It's the first massive failure of, 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 of the government to protect the innocent. And what does the governor do? He issues a publication ban after Cotton Mather's book comes up. The he, gag he, rule. This exactly. is important. The yeah. first cover-up in American history. Uh, he said, uh, we're not going to talk about this. That's right. For three years it lasted. And when it's broken, who breaks it? It's a Quaker. And, you know, people have the stereotype that everyone in Massachusetts were Puritan. But, in fact, if you listen to Hawthorne in the seven, House of Seven Gables, he's talking about Quakers there, right? Matthew Maul, the character who is the wizard who is wronged. Right. Um, Hawthorne names him very deliberately after Thomas Maul, the Salem Quaker, who's the man who breaks that publication ban after three years mm -hmm. and is punished severely for that. Uh, but initially, when he's tried, that's where the American dream comes true. He's found not guilty by a jury, including a man who'd been on the trial of the witches three years earlier and convicting mm -hmm. people. And he's found guilty um, in large parts and seen by American legal experts as the beginning of freedom of religion, freedom of press, freedom of speech in America. So there is hope that comes out of this. But also, too, every generation, every generation, as Marilyn says, right? Yep. They keep going down the wrong road, but it's not <laughs> easy generation. to say. It is a generational story, uh, Seven Gables. And am I right that the, the big moral in Hawthorne's vision is that uh, it's sort of Shakespeare, you know, the good that men do is interpret their bones, but the the evil lives after, regenerates, comes back and back generationally. It's never, it's never destroyed. It's never overcome. It's never transcended. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? It seems. I mean, it's not a very uplifting note, but I I say, unfortunately, as long as we have things like racism and bigotry and hatred and scapegoating, we're going to have some kind of witchcraft, aren't we? <sighs> Or something. You know, for me, uh, <laughs> the, the, the cure for all this is just to go home and read Hawthorne. <laughs> I mean, th there's a darkness in the man um, as well as the sheer beauty of his prose. It's everywhere. Here's a little tiny fragment from the Scarlet Letter. He writes, It is a curious subject of observation and inquiry where the hatred and love be not the same thing at bottom. Each in its utmost development supposes a high degree of intimacy and heart knowledge, each renders one individual dependent for the food of his affections and spiritual life upon another, each leaves the passionate lover or the no less passionate hater forlorn and desolate by the withdrawal of his object. I mean, what didn't he understand about us? He was, Melville dedicated Moby Dick to Hawthorne. He thought he yeah. was the Shakespeare of the American Renaissance. He was also probably the handsomest writer in American history <laughs> and probably the happiest married man among uh, in the literary crowd, don't we think? 
but at the same time, he was clearly haunted, wasn't he? <laughs> I think so. Enough to change the spelling of his name from the H-A-T-H. He put in a W to distinguish himself from the, the bad guy in but the there's witch a, But there's a question about why he did that. Um, he may have done that for just a short everything, time, right? I know. But also, Answer. he wasn't the only one either to change their names. Uh, the, the nurses became Norses. The Gedneys became Gidneys. Well, everyone spe- either... Spelling was sort of <laughs> up to you. Up to you with That's it. right. Spelling optional. Yeah. Isn't part of the beauty, as, as Catherine Howe is saying, though, that this legend is so close, so palpable to where we sit right now. And Cape Ann, I, I don't want to give it away, but it, it is so different from shall we say, Cape Cod. Mm -hmm. So less commercial, less imprinted with great public works, like the bridges and the canals and all that sort of stuff, and entirely recognizable from from this history and and those stories, no? Uh, It has its own feeling. It's it's not like, it's not that touristy, except Salem in October, of course. But uh, yeah, you, you you can get the feel of what happened there. What do you love about the North Shore, Tad? Everything. It's it, it just I get the chills just walking the streets of Salem because I feel like I'm back in the 17th century, and uh, it, you just the people come back and the scenes and the and and Hawthorne and, and the lines from the witch trials. Should I mention Cranes Beach, <laughs> or the Ipswich Marshes, or Newburyport, uh, Gloucester? It's Be, all being in a place is part of. Explore, exploring what happened there, you get you you can get the feel of just it's having amazing. missed seeing somebody. Is the Alamo that way? I don't. I've I don't never know. been there. I've been there and I didn't feel a thing. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I can't imagine writing uh, about the witch trials and not being in Salem. It's well, you just, have to be on the ground, really. To, you really to do see because it. it's 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 a very powerful sense of place that'll that'll never go away. And you I can get in a good swim on the same trip. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Tad Baker. Marilyn Roach, Stacy Schiff, and Catherine Howe. Thanks also to Terry Colgren and Stacy Tilney, the Salem Witch Museum. Our show this week was produced by the very spooky team of Max Larkin, Connor Gillies, Pat Tomeno, and Zach Goldhammer. George Hicks is our wizard at the controls. Mary McGrath is our witch in chief. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source. <laughs>